Every town has a dark side. This is Andrew Fitzgerald from the Every Town Podcast, where every single week we dive into insane and mysterious true crime stories, most of which you've never heard of. Stories like the bizarre disappearance of Tyler Davis in Columbus, Ohio, a 29-year-old father trying to find his way back to his hotel when he disappeared and was never heard from again, and Elizabeth Shelf from Lugoff, South Carolina, who was abducted from her driveway by a madman and taken to his underground bunker in the woods. And we give you all the details you're interested in hearing about without any fluff or fillers, because ain't nobody got time for that. We cover everything from psychopaths to poltergeists, so go check out the Everytown podcast, because every town, no matter how nice it may seem, has a dark side. It's never a good idea to borrow money from the Mafia, especially for gambling. Still, many people do and have done this for well over a century. If you lived in Chicago from the 1950s to the early 1970s, you might have borrowed money from Sam Stefano, an associate of the so-called Chicago Outfit. One of their prominent members is the legendary Al Capone, a mobster whose legacy as a gangster was typically endemic to the culture of organized crime. He embodied the ultimate mafioso stereotype and would continue to do so after his death. Like Al Capone, Sam Stefano was a loan shark. And just like Capone, Stefano would react with violence when borrowers came up short or failed to pay up altogether. This money would become known as juice, and Stefano was very fond of squeezing it out of his victims by any means necessary. John Binder, author of The Chicago Outfit. If you go borrow from a juice lender, it's an illegal loan. As an illegal contract, it cannot be enforced in court. So in terms of collecting then, that left the juice lenders with only sort of one avenue. That was violence and the threat of violence. Sam Stefano made Al Capone look like the Virgin Mary when it came to squeezing the juice out of his debtors. Indeed, for those who found themselves on the wrong side of these transactions, what they saw in Sam Stefano's eyes was the pure, black hatred of the Antichrist. He embodied the full potential of mortal evil and lived on in the memories of those who survived their encounters with him as a human monster of the worst variety. Frank Collada worked for DeStefano as a hitman. According to him and all other members of the Chicago outfit, Mad Sam was a sadistic, homicidal maniac. To quote Collada, Sam was a killing machine with no soul. He loved and enjoyed savagely and mercilessly torturing people so much that he would foam out of the mouth while doing it and pray to the devil in tongues. He was a homicidal maniac. He was a psychopath and just a very sick and deranged guy. I saw him kill a lot of people and I saw him rape a lot of young women and even teenaged girls. I've seen him physically abuse his wife and mistresses 
and have seen him brutally and horrifically torture to death hundreds and hundreds of people. Probably at least a thousand people I've seen him torture and kill. I've never seen anybody in my life so evil, demented, and vicious. He is the epitome of pure evil. If you look up evil in the dictionary, his face would be right there. He is the devil himself. And if that's not the devil, then I don't know who or what is. They didn't call him Mad Sam for nothing. He was the worst of the worst. There's nobody in the history of the world that could surpass him when it comes to being a serial killer. Nobody could ever surpass him as far as being evil, crazy, and vicious. I thought I was bad. I mean, I am a killer. I've killed people. I've tortured people. I've killed people for Sam Stefano on his orders. I've killed on the orders from the Chicago Outfit bosses. But I'm a saint compared to Sam Stefano. He makes Ted Bundy look like a Girl Scout. Sam Stefano was far more evil and vicious than every serial killer in the world combined. He was a million times worse than Ted Bundy and Jeffrey Dahmer. He was, in my opinion, the most evil and ruthless man who has ever lived. He was the worst human being ever. He was an animal. He was pure evil. He was stone-cold evil. He was the worst evil that anybody in the world could ever know or see. He was literally much worse than Satan himself. Though he did not bear witness to any of DeStefano's violent crimes, FBI agent William F. Romer still remembers Mad Sam as evil incarnate. I got to know Mad Sam DeStefano, the worst torture murderer in the history of Chicago. He was a sadistic, arrogant, swaggering thug of the worst order, responsible for scores of killings, almost all by his own hands. I had a long series of confrontations with this beast, and looking back, I must admit, I enjoyed every one. Sam was secretly urinating in the coffee that Romer had been drinking. Romer became very disgusted, very displeased. He was being made a fool of, and he was very careful never to put himself back in that kind of position again with Sam DiStefano. For most mafiosi, juice is strictly business. Whether they beat you up, break your kneecaps, or shoot you in the head, it's a punishment for violating the terms of your verbal agreement to pay back the money. It's easy to see how someone would struggle to pay back a juice loan. Aside from the balance owed, interest rates would escalate to as much as 25% a week. Someone who borrowed $500 could have wound up owing $8,000 or more if they took too long to pay or fell behind in their payments. Compound interest was the least of their worries. The punishment one incurred for failing to make a payment on their juice loan was either death or the kind of mental and physical torture they would be lucky to walk away from. When Sam DiStefano dealt out the consequences, they just might have prayed to be released from the burden of mortality to end the suffering. Ever seen the movie Casino? In the film, Joe Pesci's character, Nicky Santoro, is a loan shark who squeezes a man's head in a vice to force him to give him the name of a criminal associate 
who had done wrong to Santoro. This son of a bitch was tough. Personally, I don't even give For two up. days and two fucking nights, we beat the shit out of this guy. I mean, we even stuck ice picks in his balls. You better hope he gives me a fucking name sooner or I'm going to give him yours, Frank. Yeah, thanks a lot. But he never talked. I know you would have read it by now. In the end, I had to put his fucking head in a vice. Dogs. Dogs, can you hear me, dogs? Listen to me, Anthony. I got your head in a fucking vice. I'm going to squash your fucking head like a grapefruit if you don't give me a name. Don't make me have to do this, please. Come on. Don't make me be a bad guy. Come on. Fuck you. This motherfucker. You believe this? Two fucking days and nights. Fuck me. Fuck me, you motherfucker. Fuck my mother. That's what you fucking tell me. Motherfucker, you, huh? Oh, God. Give me the fucking name. Charlie M. Charlie M? Charlie M? Charlie M? Ah. You make me pop your fucking eye out of your head to protect that piece of shit? Charlie M? You dumb motherfucker! Kill you, fuck! You, you motherfucker, you! Nikki Santoro was based on a protege of DeStefano's named Tony Spalatro, also known as The Ant and Tough Tony. DeStefano taught him about using the vice. He also taught him about putting a man on a meat hook and hanging him from it while torturing him for days. DeStefano also became known for fixing criminal cases. Part of the customer base for a juice lender is the, um, the criminals out there. They, they need bond, they need a lawyer. Sam would actually go out and commit bribery of police officers first, failing in that of judges second, in order to get the people found not guilty and once boasted that there wasn't any case he could not fix. He charged $800 for fixing a robbery case and $1,500 for assault. It is alleged he fixed a murder case for $20,000. There's claims that some crooked police officer would actually drive these guys out to the Stefano's house to get the juice loan. So they were working as almost ropers for him. For those who couldn't pay Stefano back immediately, they would be put on juice and face the same consequences anybody else did if they became delinquent on their payments. Juice is it's like squeezing somebody and the juice is coming out. So you're putting the squeeze on them. You don't go to these people and force your money on them. They come to you and beg you for the money. And then if they come up blame, you put the squeeze on them, which is juice, which you had to pay a certain amount of money back, you know, on the juice every week. Sam was the guy that had the juice racket locked up. He had the most money out there on the street. So it made him king, king of the juice business. While it was said that he was not actually a made member of the mob, he was considered to be one of the most significant of the mob bosses, and certainly one of the most notorious. As a hitman, Stefano killed an estimated 3,000 people and relished the opportunity to do so. It's easy when you're a sadistic psychopath with a thirst for blood. Some of his outfit associates reported that DeStefano would sometimes get so wound up from torturing his juice victims, he would foam at the mouth. Samuel DeStefano was born in Streeter, Illinois on September 13, 1909 to Italian immigrants. After his father lost his job working as a miner, he moved the family to the Italian ghetto of Chicago located on the west side. Sam was a career criminal, and he got his start early in life. One of his earliest arrest records 
documented a successful jailbreak on September 12, 1926. Whether it was because he didn't want to spend his birthday in the clink, or because no one could ever cage this beast for long, it was a clear indicator that San Stefano was a feral animal. He was a member of the so-called 42 Gang and committed many criminal acts while he was in good standing. Detective Wayne Johnson, formerly of the Chicago Police Department. They would be out there committing crimes, burglaries, thefts, robberies. They were involved in all of it. They would also do some light work for the mob. Frank Culotta, former outfit mobster. Shred comes in numbers. So if you got 42 guys, you got a you got a strong army going for you. The following year he was charged with carrying a concealed weapon. It was also in 1927 when he was charged with sexually assaulting a 17-year-old girl with associate Ralph Orlando. She was taken from her escort and forced into a car whereupon she was raped by seven men. Orlando was given 10 years for the rape, while De Stefano was only given 3 years. The reasoning was that while De Stefano was half responsible for kidnapping her and facilitating the rape, he hadn't gotten his turn by the time the arresting officers arrived at the scene. Arthur Bilek, Chief Cook County Police, retired. Sam was not smart. No one ever said that Sam was a brilliant criminal. Even in prison, De Stefano was an outlaw. As a lone shark, he enforced rules and regulations with the ferocity of Adolf Hitler. Following rules was another matter entirely. The following are infractions that were documented by prison staff during his sentence: playing cards and refusing to hand them over to an officer, throwing bread out of his cell, having cheese in his cell, refusing to enter his cell, laying down on the job. insolence to an officer refusing to be transferred refusing to obey orders getting hair cut out of turn the punitive environment of prison did nothing to alleviate his transgressive behavior 3 months after he was released in 1931 he was arrested by Chicago police for what they called general principles this charge wasn't substantial enough to warrant a conviction however and he was released They should have waited until June 24th of that year. He was caught having inappropriate relations with a 15-year-old girl after registering for a hotel room as husband and wife. He was nearly convicted for rape, but the charges were dropped later that year on October 10th. These charges were lightweight compared to what the future had in store. That same month, De Stefano committed his first in a series of armed robberies. After several arrests and short-lived prison sentences, De Stefano used money he made from armed robberies and various investments to start up a juice racket. A big part of juice lending clientele was gamblers who, surprise, surprise, invariably lose. But if they're hooked on gambling, they want to play some more. There'd be a juice lending guy sitting by the front door. People hear that there's this crazy SOB, and if you fall behind on your payments to him, you get taken over his house. He takes an ice pick to you in his basement. The basement of De Stefano's home was his torture chamber. Though the purpose of starting the juice racket was to make money, De Stefano derived just as much pleasure from the mayhem as the money. The enjoyment Sam was showing during these torture sessions, only a psychopath can do that. He would act crazy. 
He was a maniac, a madman. Mad Sam street credibility in terms of his uh, reputation for ferocity. You know, people would have the attitude, my God, there's nothing this guy won't do. It's a valuable thing to have as a juice lender. His methods were as innovative as they were sadistic and horrifying. Some highlights. Peter Capoletti borrowed $25,000 from Stefano, and actually had the temerity to try to keep it. In retaliation, Sam threw Peter out in front of his family and burned him severely. Sam's only act of mercy consisted of attempting to put out the flames by way of urination. Stefano forced Capoletti's wife and children to piss out the flames as a family. Following this, the family promptly paid Stefano back. Sam's boss, Sam Giancana, ordered a hit on Sam's brother, Michael. Unlike the fictional Michael Corleone of The Godfather Part II, who experienced remorse after committing fratricide, Sam experienced no trepidation or guilt. Robert Fusel, former executive director, Chicago Police. Part of the mob is you obey what you're told to do. They're a corporation, and if you don't do what you're going to do, you know you're going to be fired, and fired means you're going to be killed. So he was told to kill his brother, and he, and he obediently did it. With the easy money that was going into Michael's pockets, he fell victim just as many other people have to a narcotic habit. Sam Stefano did not take kindly to Michael's addiction. He stabbed him to death, stripped his body, and washed it with soap and water to, quote, cleanse his soul. Usually in gang and killings, uh, quite often there's a shot to the head. And quite often the body is just left there until somebody by accident discovers it. Alan R. May, author of Gangland Gotham. Sam cleaned up the body and uh, put it in the trunk and made sure it was found so that they could have a, uh, a family burial. As an indicator of the state of DeStefano's mental health at the time, when investigators questioned him about the murder, he giggled uncontrollably. When they repeated their questions, he laughed even harder. Well, it just shows you the mentality, the utter disregard. That comes out loud and clear when you're dealing with these individuals. When Sam discovered that his collector, Leo Foreman, was mishandling his money, Foreman went from juice enforcer to victim in short order. First, he stabbed him in the buttocks with an ice pick 20 times. Following this, he shot him in the buttocks. Foreman begged Stefano to spare him. Instead, Stefano and his accomplices cut him numerous times with a butcher knife and cut hunks of his flesh from his arms once he was dead. He forced his wife to play Russian roulette with a loaded gun in her mouth. He, for one reason or another, got very upset with his wife. What he does is he sees this guy waiting for the bus. He kidnaps the guy, brings him back to the house, and punishes his wife, Anita, by forcing her to have sex with this random guy. I really don't know if she really loved him or she was just there under the fear. They had kids, you know, but where's she gonna go? She left them. After finding out that William Action Jackson, one of his juice enforcers, turned out to be an FBI informant, DeStefano took action. People did not want to fool with Action Jackson. He was one of their most effective uh, extortionists Whenever anybody was refusing to pay, Sam could call action. 
Jackson was being suspected as an informant. And even being seen talking to an FBI agent can sign your death warrant, regardless of what your position is within the gang. Aided by accomplices, they took Jackson to a meat rendering factory and hung him on a meat hook. They smashed his knees with a hammer. They stabbed him repeatedly with an ice pick. They punched him wearing brass knuckles. They pounded his genitalia with a cattle prod. They burned him with a blowtorch. They peeled sections of his skin off. Once all this was done with, they left him for dead. He died on the hook three days later. His body was found in the trunk of his car. DeStefano would kill anyone. Cops, federal agents, judges, lawyers, women, and even children. On a few occasions, he killed entire families. I know that Sam well, was a sort of a freak when it comes to woman. He was a serial rapist. He enjoyed rape as much as murder. He would kidnap a woman or even a group of women and rape them viciously for a few days. He was as aroused by their suffering as he was by the sex itself. Afterward, he would either force them into prostitution or kill them. Even some Chicago outfit soldiers objected to this. Occasionally, he would go to a biker bar and rape a woman in front of all the men. He yanked her to, to the bathroom. She was screaming, ranting and raving. He raped her. I said, this is guy goofy. He's going to get a rape charge. And then the girl came out of her screaming and crying, went back at the bar. She never did call the cops. None of the men so much as openly objected to this because of DeStefano's brutal reputation. They feared that if they did anything, he would kill them or their entire families. Though he was strongly disliked as a human being by the Chicago outfit bosses, he was permitted to operate his juice racket because it made money, and being a good earner is all that mattered to them. At one point, his juice operation pulled in $75 million a year. He also oversaw a numbers racket that pulled in $200 million a year. DeStefano's personal net worth, after all his criminal activities, amounted to $600 million at the time of his death. Charles Chucky Cromaldi was one of DeStefano's juice collectors. As he reported, one of Sam's favorite pastimes was to drive along country roads where traffic was relatively scarce and search for potential burial grounds to dump his juice victims' bodies. On one occasion, he remarked, we could bury a dozen guys there and nobody would ever find a smell of them. He would also visit pig farms and stare at the pigs for as long as an hour. He would contemplate how he could feed his victims to the pigs as a means to destroy evidence. DeStefano read the Bible extensively and even memorized passages, though he was no Christian. As Cromaldi recalled, it was quite the contrary. Sam was convinced that he was indeed Satan's disciple. When he was in trouble or getting heat, he would drop to his knees and pray. The ritual was always preceded by violent rage, during which he would stomp the floor and swear endlessly. He seemed to lose contact with the world around him, and his anger propelled him through a series of spasms into some private hell where only he and the devil could enter. 
On all fours, he would smash his fists against the floor in frustration and rage. The drool would pour from his mouth in streams to form frothy puddles beneath his face. His gravelly voice would become a croak, so guttural that his words were barely comprehensible. Once he had reached this state, he would pray to the devil. De Stefano's bizarre behavior was exhibited in the courtroom as well. He'd go in there screaming like a lunatic. He'd go in there and make all his noise and scream, call everybody stupidges. He didn't care. And on at least one occasion, Anthony Spilatro and Mario De Stefano endeavored to be tried separately from Sam, fearing that his antics in the courtroom would cast doubts on their own sanity. Touch me, but don't touch my brother. I don't like it when you touch my brother. Don't look cross-eyed at my brother. Then I became what they call a raving maniac. Do I make myself clear? Abuse me, do what you want, slap me in the face and I won't say nothing. But don't you pick on my family. Mad Sam would do things like show up wearing pajamas or have himself carted in on a stretcher or in a wheelchair. On one occasion, when he insisted on representing himself, the judge disallowed him from doing so. And the judge told him to be quiet. And Sam yelled back, I'll show you how quiet I can be. And he reached under the blanket that was in his lap, and he had a bullhorn, and he began to talk to the judge through the bullhorn. The judge toiled him in immediate contempt of court and had the deputy sheriffs drag him out into the lockup. Mad Sam had chafed against authority all his life, and it put him in jail and got him into trouble with prison administration while he was in there. The bosses of the Chicago outfit knew Sam was a loose cannon, and that is why he was never made, despite being one of the outfit's top earners. What they would not tolerate was his attention-seeking with the media. Among the many traditions that are upheld by the mob is the practice of keeping a low profile. That means no interviews and no press conferences. Sam DiStefano performed for the press. I don't need no loan. I got a lot of money. Maybe the President of the United States would like to borrow some from me. And they were more than happy to provide him with an audience. The press just couldn't get enough of it, you know. And if it was uh, in today's day and age, it would be on 24-7 and be on YouTube. I think you newspaper people and the news media, TVs and radios know me long enough to know that I don't involve myself in crime because if I did, I wouldn't face your cameras and etc. and I wouldn't turn around and talk to you as I do. I stand up for my rights. I intend to do it till the day I draw my last breath. Have I done anything or frighten you? They claim I frighten everybody. Why? I'm now 63 years old. I couldn't whip a 10-year-old boy. But have any of you at any time been frightened of me? John Drummond, reporter for WBBM in Chicago. High profile would bring trouble. The low profile, they let you alone. And Sam did not do that. He kept that high profile. He was asking for trouble, and he got what he asked for. I think the, the outfit in Chicago lost credibility. If this outfit is so dangerous, why did they keep a clown like this on the payroll? Uh, he was attracting the attention of the police. He attracted the attention of the media. 
Even the public knew a lot about him. That, that was too much. Three strikes, you're out. They also shared Mario Stefano and Tony Spilatro's concerns that Stefano's bizarre behavior in the courtroom would jeopardize the effectiveness of their other crew members' defense. They thought, let's get rid of the cancer right now. And I think that's what happened. He's a very dangerous individual, but very difficult for the hierarchy to control. He was undisciplined. You didn't know what he was going to do next. His protection was gone, and uh, he was kind of out there on his own. It was one of those situations where it just, it was kind of the beginning of the end. The word was sent by outfit chief Tony Accardo. Sam Stefano had become a liability and was to be whacked. Within organized crime, the people that are closest to you may be the people called upon to deal with you when there is a problem, and that's exactly what happened. He was killed by two men. One was his own juice collector, Tony Spilatro. The other killer chosen befits the karma of a man who once killed his own brother, Mario Stefano. Spilotro hid behind the brother until he could get the shotgun pulled and raised, and then Mario stepped out of the way. Sam's wife found his body. Summing up Stefano's legacy, both criminals and law enforcement officials gave their verdicts. I would consider his legacy as being a moron, a maniac, a degenerate. He didn't leave much of anything good as far as the legacy behind him. William Romer described Stefano as the worst torture murderer in history and one of the most vicious, sadistic, and dangerous criminals who has ever lived. They say crime doesn't pay. In the mob it does, if you're a human monster. Tony Spilatro was a thug. He's a criminal. He killed people. I think they chose him because of his ability to scare people. He had no conscience. If they needed to put out a hit, he could do it. And would do it. The guy was getting uncontrollable. In the movie Casino, it was striking because even amongst gangsters, he stood out in the fearlessness. He was going to either humiliate you or kill you. Anthony Spilatro was short, five feet five inches tall. However, anybody who assumed that his diminutive height was indicative of an equally inadequate level of strength and menace, did so at their peril. Spilatro was one of Chicago Outfit's most fearsome enforcers. He could extract information from anyone using such effective methods of torture that his victims never anticipated that anything could hurt that much. They thought they understood pain before they were introduced to Spilatro, but they were neophytes. Professor Spilatro taught them what suffering was all about, and if they lived to tell the story, they emerged with PhDs in pain. Anthony John Spilatro was born May 19, 1938, in Chicago, Illinois. He had nicknames, the more flattering of which was Tough Tony, Chicago Outfit Gangster, and Spilatro Associate Frank Collada. 
Tony was shorter than me, and I'm sure. He was very tough. He would fight anybody. His oldest brother he used to hang around a swimming pool. He'd offer everybody 5 or $10 if they would fight his kid brother, Tony. Nobody would take him up on it. Less complimentary was the name Agent William Romer of the FBI fashioned for him. The Ant. William Romer was charged with the task of putting Spilatro behind bars, and his contempt for Spilatro was thinly veiled. Ant is short for that little pissant. Pissant was considered too profane for media coverage, so reporters shortened his moniker to the Ant. Tony probably wasn't very keen on his other moniker either, the little guy. Spilatro was the fourth of six children born to Italian immigrants and was born and raised in West Chicago. Tony's parents, Pasquale and Antoinette, ran Patsy's Restaurant. Due to this, Tony didn't have to look far to form alliances with the mob. Patsy's counted gangsters such as Salvatore Sam Giancani, Jackie the Lackey Cerrone, Gus Alex, and Francesco Frank the Enforcer Niti among its regulars. Hardship befell the Spilatro family in 1954 when Pasquale died from an aneurysm at the age of 55, leaving his wife to raise and support their six sons. Perhaps it was due to the lost income of that five of the Spilatro boys, John, Vincent, Victor, Michael, and Tony embarked on their careers in crime. Only Pasquale Jr. opted for legitimate employment, becoming one of Chicago's most esteemed oral surgeons years later. Tony's earliest offenses are petty in contrast to the crimes for which he would become famous. Ron Koziol, investigative reporter for the Chicago Tribune. Before he got out of high school, he already had a group of people that he hung around with that were taking the wrong road as well. Shortly after dropping out of high school in his sophomore year, he cut his teeth shoplifting and snatching purses. You start out sort of wild until you start getting a little educated. You stole cars, uh, sticking up gas stations, sticking up restaurants. He was arrested for the first time on January 11th, 1955. He tried to steal a watch from a River Forest store and was charged with larceny. The penalties? a $10 fine, and probation. The Chicago Outfit. He wanted to be an outfit guy, which I didn't. And he wound up getting connected at a young age, probably 18, 19. He started out, they called it the bank route, robbing bank messengers. And this is what he started doing with them guys. Then they went from that to truck hijacking. Splotro became one of the mob's go-to guys when payments on juice loans were delinquent. John J. Flood, former investigator for the Cook County Sheriff's Office. A little five-foot-five Tony would show up and say, you either pay me or I'll tell you. He was also a brutal interrogator who could pry information out of anyone. Sometimes you'll beat a guy to death to make him suffer. And that particular situation, you know, you you want to show my tough there, Tony. He didn't know any better. Either did I. It's the way we grew up. Spilatro's capacity for savagery and brutality established him as one of the most feared and respected members of the Chicago Outfit crime family. Though the Outfit was happy to employ him as muscle when they needed to mete out their own form of justice. 
he still needed to prove that he was as effective as an earner. At the end of the day, that's what it was all about, making money. They were using him to do their dirty work. And then over time, they would see whether or not they could groom him to uh, be the kind of uh, moneymaker uh, that would be uh, a, a benefit uh, to the outfit. Tony became a made man in 1963. The timing was right because he needed to earn a comfortable living. He was now married and he and his wife Nancy would welcome a son, Vincent. By the time of Splotcher's death in 1986, he was suspected of having committed a minimum of 22 murders. In 1983, he was indicted for the so-called M&M murders. M&M stands for Miraglia and McCarthy, James and Bill respectively. Miraglia and McCarthy were criminals who robbed and killed two businessmen and a woman in the Chicago neighborhood of Elmwood Park where many of the city's mobsters lived. This neighborhood was considered off-limits for such activity since it would have attracted attention from law enforcement to the gangsters who lived there. It also didn't help their cause that they were indebted to Sam DiStefano, Lee Flosi, FBI agent. He took Tony on as a, at a young age as a collector. And I'm sure that whatever propensity he already had for violence, with the tutelage of Sam DiStefano, he became an expert at torture, making people pay up. Wayne Johnson, former chief investigator, Chicago Crime Commission. Mad Sam was a maniac. And even law enforcement was leery of him because he had such a propensity for violence. He loved to torture people. On May 15, 1962, the police opened the trunk of a car that was dumped in the southwest side of Chicago. Locals had been complaining about a stench that had surrounded the vehicle. The corpses of Bill McCarthy and James Miraglia were found inside at an advanced stage of decomposition as maggots feasted on them. The bodies bore the scars of vicious beatings, and both their throats were slit. McCarthy's injuries were more numerous and severe than Miraglia's. From what attendant officers and the coroner determined, based on their examination of his corpse, his head had been placed in a vice, popping out one of his eyes. Speculation about the purpose of this culminated in a theory that McCarthy was tortured into disclosing the whereabouts of Miraglia. Spilatro admitted years later that he was impressed with McCarthy's threshold of pain, saying that he was one of the toughest men he ever met. Other murders alleged to have been committed by Spilatro include, in an interview with Willow Springs, Illinois Police Chief Michael Corbett, Chicago outfit capo Sal Bastoni implicated Spilatro in the murder of boss Sam Giancana. The FBI has maintained a firm belief that Splatro was involved to some degree in the torture and murder of former loan shark and enforcer William Action Jackson, the one that occurred in the meatpacking plant. In 1963, he stabbed real estate agent Leo Foreman, who threw Spilatro's mentor Sam DiStefano out of his office. DiStefano called Spilatro and requested his assistance with Foreman's torture and execution. Spilatro cut hunks of flesh from his body and hit his kneecaps repeatedly with a hammer. DiStefano joined in, stabbing Foreman with an ice pick 20 times. Finally, DiStefano shot Foreman. Spilatro was indicted along with Sam DiStefano and his brothers for the murder in 1972. 
During the trial, Spilatro cut his ties with DiStefano because of his bizarre behavior. He was given consent by the Chicago Outfit bosses to kill him. He carried out this murder on April 15, 1973. It was very bloody. In fact, his arm was almost torn off by a shotgun blast. This was an end to an era in Spilatro's career as a criminal. But a new chapter was about to begin. In 1964, Spilatro was dispatched by the outfit to Miami to protect and supervise all their income from the city's casinos that they had invested in. The casinos were primarily controlled by sports better and handicapper Frank Rosenthal. Unlike Spilatro, Rosenthal was uh, uh, strictly a, a gambling guy. That's what his specialty was. Spilatro and Rosenthal developed a friendship but Spilatro returned to Chicago in 1967, and they drifted apart. The timing couldn't have been worse, just as Frank Rosenthal was arrested and fined for bribing a college basketball player, Tony Spilatro was arrested by the IRS and charged for running a gambling operation out of his home. Bookmaking in Chicago is a very, very large enterprise. Millions and millions of dollars are made from it. Bob Fusel former IRS special agent. He was very nice at the arrest. His wife was really the one that went crazy and was making a lot of obstructions. He told me at the time, just remember my name. And I looked at him and I think that was an indication that he was going to be the new guy on the block. His personality of being a cocky young punk, as he turned out to be, was one in which he didn't use his brains, he used his power. John D. Drummond former reporter for WBBM-TV. Obviously, the FBI and the IRS began to feel this was a person that they had to watch. The Chicago Police Department intelligence unit did, too. They felt that uh, Spilatro was a force to be reckoned with. He was fined, but did not serve time in prison. He was fined for a similar offense in 1969. This compelled him to leave Chicago for good. I think Spilatro had reached a point where he had done all that he could do in Chicago. He had aspirations of becoming a, a cop or a boss, uh, and there wasn't anybody uh, willing to give up their position for him. Las Vegas. Spilatro and Rosenthal would cross paths again. This time in Las Vegas, Spilatro replaced gangster Marshall Caifano as the outfit's representative in the city in 1971. With the aid of money borrowed from the Teamsters Pension Fund, the outfit backed several casinos. Without Teamster uh, Pension Funds, uh, the MAB wouldn't have been able to build Vegas the way they wanted to build it. So there was a close relationship, and it was basically under the control of the Chicago outfit. They profited when a percentage of the profits was taken from the count room of each casino. This procedure would come to be known as the skim. They needed someone to protect their investments, and the position required someone that people would fear. Tony Spilatro was groomed for the position, being the obvious choice due to his ruthlessness and barbarous temperament. He jumped at the opportunity. Little did he know that he was jumping into another fire. Rosenthal managed the day-to-day -day operations of the casinos. Lefty's a gambling guy. He's an expert. He's an expert at being a floor manager in a casino. Lefty knew how a casino should run, and he was very effective. Rosenthal was the man on the inside, while Spilatro established himself as the man on the outside. Casino managers, the pit bosses and everything knew that 
they were being watched or that there was an outfit here and if they did anything wrong or stole they would be dealt with severely. Kent Clifford, former commander of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department. If there was a mob hit to be done out here, he got the order to do it. In Chicago, Spalacho never rose above the rank of soldier, but in Las Vegas, he had his own crew. He always said he wanted to be the boss. So I'm going to be the boss one day. You want to come with me? Police greeted Spalacho when he arrived at the airport, though there was nothing they could bust him on, and their attempt to intimidate him fell flat. In the coming weeks, he would torture and murder five loan sharks whose bodies wound up in the desert. The Las Vegas police could not link the murders to Spalatro due to lack of evidence. The sudden uptick in the murder rate was not deemed coincidental. He was never a suspect, but you can see how things changed once he got there. The crime increased of all kinds, burglaries, armed robberies. Using Stewart, his wife's maiden name, Spalacho took control of the gift shop in Circus Circus Hotel for $70,000. Circus Circus provided a casino for adults and age-appropriate entertainment for their children. In 1974, when Circus Circus was sold, he received $700,000 for the gift shop, 10 times his initial investment. Spalacho immersed himself deeper in the Las Vegas underworld when he started a juice loan business with Frank Bompensiero, the head of a Los Angeles-based organized crime family. As problem gamblers watched their life savings and mortgage payments dwindle down to nothing, Spalatro's body count rose. Tony Spalatro was a one-man crime wave. In November 1975, with assistance from Bompensiero, Spalatro gained entry into the house of San Diego real estate heiress Tamara Rand and shot her dead. Rand was suing Alan Glick, the front man for the outfit's gambling interests and CEO of Argent Corporation. She accused Glick of reneging on a $2 million loan he borrowed from her. The lawsuit was attracting too much attention to the outfit and their activities in Las Vegas, and they shut her up in the only way they knew how. The Hole in the Wall Gang Along with his brother Michael and Chicago bookmaker Herbert Blitstein, Tony Splotro opened the Gold Rush Jewelry Store, whose merchandise was procured both through illegal and legal means. If it was stolen in Las Vegas and put in there, you never know, you might get the guy come in there to buy his ring and see his ring in there. Hey, that's my ring, you know. The store was open to serve as a front for a gang of burglars Spalatro assembled that would be dubbed the Hole in the Wall Gang. He just wanted me to put a crew together. You want me to bring four or five guys out there, they got to earn. They got to steal. They got to do something. He's telling them to steal. He says, if it's a real big score, he says, just give me a percent. Their name was based on their trademark invasion technique, which consisted of drilling through the exterior walls of houses and buildings. The Black Book. As the 1970s drew to a close, Tony Spilatro's luck was running out in Las Vegas. In December 1979, Anthony Spilatro was included as among the many names entered into the infamous Black Book. The book lists all individuals who have been banned by the Nevada Gaming Commission from entering any of the state's casinos. To make matters worse, Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano, the acting boss of the Los Angeles organized crime family, turned state witness to avoid prosecution and testified against Spilatro. 
It was around this time when a former associate of Sam DiStefano provided evidence of Spilatro's role in the murder of Leo Foreman and William Action Jackson. In 1981, Sal Romano, a member of the Hole in the Wall gang, who was secretly a mole for the FBI, botched an attempt to burglarize a store called Bertha's Household Products. He turned state witness and provided details about the robbery to government agents who intervened as the crime was in progress. He told us that they was going to be there. Colada had organized it, and they was going to be at Bertha's on the... 4th of July because the fireworks would be going on. So that was a good opportunity. We could wrap it up and catch them all. As a result, many other members of the gang were taken into custody. All of us go to jail. Tony uh, don't help nobody. Tony don't come up with no money for the bands. He was paranoid. Uh, his life was in shambles. All the heat, all the aggravation. He was useless. Uh, he couldn't do nothing no more out there. They were going to put him in jail one way or another. Spilatro was paranoid because Frank Culotta knew so much about his activities. Tony figured that he couldn't afford to leave him in there. He knew too much. So he was going to kill him. One time I went to his house. We had to take all our clothes off. Then he issued us a bathing suit. We had to go into the jacuzzi with him and talk about all the problems while... One of their wives went through all our clothes, looking for a wire. He was caught during surveillance discussing his decision to whack Colada with an outfit associate. I wasn't worried about jail. I was worried about if he could reach out in there and get me killed. The FBI guy said, see if you could tell me who's talking on these tapes. It's a wiretap between Tony and somebody else in Chicago. And Tony, he didn't say my name, but he says he's lost his mind. He says, I have no control over him. He's doing whatever he wants to do. He said, well, you know what you got to do with your dirty laundry. Take care of it. Colada was right to be concerned about this. One night, his neighbor was shot by accident. My wife, she says, you hear What happened? Are you all right? I said, I shot a guy next door over here. And she says, that could have been for you. I said, oh, you're getting paranoid. The bullet was meant for Colada. Colada decided to cooperate with federal authorities. It was either do that, get killed, go to jail for the rest of my life. It's probably the biggest decision I've ever had to make. When any organized crime pool is in danger of going to prison, unless he is the boss, then there's danger of him being an informant. He assumed that Spilatro could have him whacked in prison just as easily as on the street, and he was probably right. Under oath, he confirmed that Tony was responsible for the Eminem murders. The judge says to me, in court, you seem to know quite a lot about this, these murders, and you wouldn't know it if you weren't involved in it. Spilatro was acquitted, however. There was insufficient evidence to convict. Death. The bosses of the Chicago outfit were unhappy with how Spilatro was running things. He was a loose cannon, and due to his reckless behavior, they were indicted because of the skim. He was attracting media attention because of all the murders he committed. He also violated one of the longest-standing taboos in mafia culture. He had an affair with Frank Rosenthal's wife, Jerry. 
you're supposed to stay away from your friends' wives or girlfriends. It shows disrespect for them. They really don't like to shoot you in the head for it, but they will. Tony said, man, I messed up real good. And then I said to him, you aren't screwing this woman, are you? And he says, yep. He said, I made a mistake. Tony had this terrible habit of always working on a woman that was attached to one of his friends. I said, man, you got problems. I said, they get winded us back in Chicago. They're going to be really mad. And he said, well, they'll never know. This damaged their friendship and caused more tension in an already fractured marriage. Jerry Rosenthal had already been unfaithful. She had also been upfront with Rosenthal about the fact that she only married him for his money and status. They were further divided by her substance abuse and emotional outbursts. Her philandering with Spilatro made a bad situation worse, though this didn't stop him from flaunting it by appearing with her at social functions in Las Vegas. Though Frank Rosenthal could not be made because of his Jewish lineage, he was an associate directly in their employ and was instrumental in increasing their take from the skim. Rosenthal was an innovative and committed casino manager, doubling the profits of all the gaming facilities he supervised. The skim was the only reason Rosenthal and Spilatro were ever sent to Vegas in the first place. Rosenthal made them money, and it was Spilatro's charge to ensure nothing and nobody interfered with the operation. The problem was, Spilatro was supposed to do this with discretion. Rosenthal would later distance himself from Spilatro. The way he operated uh, was an embarrassment for Lefty. Uh, he was hanging around the casinos, creating problems, drawing the attention of law enforcement, the gaming commission. He was operating a Shylocking operation from the casino. Tony was so brazen in the way he operated. They were afraid that additional scrutiny would be placed upon the outfit that would change the, the way the counting rooms were operated, uh, and they would lose their ability to get this lucrative uh, investment to pay off every month. He had one problem after another, one indictment after another, one arrest after another. He was being arrested for bungalow burglaries. He was also goofing around with the wife and he was bringing too much heat and attention on the mob at that time. With all the attention Spilatro attracted from law enforcement due to his non-gambling related crimes and his conduct within casinos, which included offensive behavior towards staff and running his juice racket in one of the casinos, Splotro's presence in the casinos became a liability. Splotro was attracting media attention for all the murders and robberies for which he was responsible and the bosses were incensed that they were about to be prosecuted due to Splotro's actions. They also did not approve with Splotro's expansion into burglary, fencing of stolen goods, and drug trafficking. He expanded into Arizona when he partnered with Paul Shiro in Phoenix. There he was competing with New York City's Bonanno family. Splotro was instrumental in smuggling drugs from Mexico into Chicago through Arizona. FBI agents estimated the total take at around $8 million a year. He was disloyal enough to get involved with gambling interests of the Kansas City, Milwaukee, and St. Louis crime families. Tony was stepping on too many toes, violating too much outfit protocol, and his brother Michael was doing the same. Former IRS Special Agent William A. Paulin. 
There was jeopardy on all sides for uh, Tony Spilatro in Las Vegas during the mid-80s, and the Chicago outfit knew that. The outfit could accept this situation no longer. In a meeting held in January 1986, they agreed unanimously to wax Spilatro. On June 14th of that year, Tony and Michael disappeared. An agent says, uh, listen, they can't find Tony or his brother Michael. Where do you think they're at? I know Tony wouldn't run, and I know Michael wouldn't run. He's always told me that there's nowhere to go. Believe me, he won't run. He's dead. Their bodies were later found clad only in underpants, buried five feet deep below farm soil in a cornfield in Enos, Indiana. The coroner determined that their cause of death was asphyxiation. They were identified by their dental records. It was Pasquale Jr. who was assigned the grim task of confirming his brother's identities in this manner. They were summoned to a hunting lodge owned by Spilatro's former boss, Joseph Ayupa. Now, the meeting was, as was told to the Spilatros, was that Tony was getting a promotion and Michael was supposed to be made. They had some suspicion setting to the meeting, but when the upper echelon of the Chicago outfit says that, uh, you know, you're to meet at this particular point in time, you're coming. They had some suspicions that there was something that may be good and something may be bad. In fact, um, Michael's uh, wife had testified that Michael had said that if he's not back by 9 o'clock, something very bad has happened. The Spalachos walk down the stairs and they see all these individuals who they all know. And Michael goes to shake hands and then sees that all the individuals are wearing gloves and they kind of know that they're not leaving this basement. At that point, Tony basically says, hey, I just need a time. Do I have time to say a prayer? They were punched and kicked to the brink of death, but were buried alive. They wanted to show him that he wasn't that tough of a tough guy. It was sad for me to see him die that way. He'd have been better off going to jail. He had a very colorful life. He killed a lot of people, you know, I could just say he's a good guy. We grew up into it. This is what he wanted to be. It's all about money. That's what it's about. Money and power. If you make bad choices, you're going to wind up in a cornfield in Indiana. Nobody was arrested or indicted for the murders at the time. On April 25, 2005, 14 members of the Chicago outfit were indicted for 18 murders, including those of the Spilatro brothers. The Chicago outfit learned the hard way, that though human monsters get things done, sometimes they go too far. Please check the podcast out on Twitter and Facebook. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.